Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 6? Now, 1 Samuel 6 is really the culmination of a uh, story that began in chapter 4, and that's where the uh, children of Israel were in battle against the Philistines. And it wasn't going so well for Israel, so they decided to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle as kind of a good luck charm. Well, when the Philistines saw what they had done, they fought even harder and captured the Ark, brought it back to the land of the Philistines, put it in the temple of their main god, Dagon, who was a half-man, half-fish god. Let's think of a male mermaid kind of a god. Put the Ark of the Covenant next to their god in the house of Dagon, you know? The idea was, look... Our God beat your God, so your God has to be next to our God, subservient. Well, the next morning, when they went into the temple of Dagon, there was Dagon on his face on the ground in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, that wasn't good, so they picked their little God up, put him back on his pedestal. Next morning, they came into the temple of Dagon, and now he's on the ground, but his head and hand, little flipper hands have snapped off, so it wasn't going well. Anyways... What they did was they began to bring the Ark of the Covenant to various cities in the land of the Philistines. They had five main cities. Every city they brought the thing to, God began to strike the city with a plague and people died. It got to the point where they said, that's it, man. The last city they came to was Ekron. The men of Ekron met them at the gates and said, don't even think about it. We don't want that. Are you trying to kill us? We don't want that thing here. Well, that brings us to chapter 6, verse 1. Now, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. We've got to get it out of here. We're going to send it back to Israel. So they said, Well, look, you know, send it back, but don't send it back without an offering, a trespass offering. Don't do it empty-handed. But by all means, return it to him with a trespass offering. Then... You will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand has not been removed from you until that time that you give him a trespass offering and send the ark back to Israel. Now, the ark of the covenant had been in the hands of the Philistines for seven months, as we have just read, and during that time they had developed a healthy, a healthy fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. All right, they knew what he had done to the Egyptians several centuries earlier in bringing the ten plagues upon them. And so they, their solution was to send the Ark of the, of the Covenant back to Israel with a trespass offering so as to appease Israel's God that his hand of judgment might be removed from them. Now, the trespass offering they decided to send back with the Ark is interesting. Verse 4, uh, then they said, well, what is the trespass offering? We shall return to him. And they answered, these were the religious wise men uh, in Dole, uh, send back five golden tumors and five golden rats according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians? And Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them. Did they not let the people go that they might depart? From the trespass offering they decided to send back with the Ark of the Covenant, we know that the plague that God brought upon the, the uh, cities of the Philistines consisted of rats and tumors that brought death. And so, as we said a few weeks ago, 
Uh, many commentators believe that because it was disease associated with rats and tumors, it was a form of bubonic plague. And we don't know for sure, but the important thing to understand here is the conclusion that these Philistine priests and diviners came to, that this plague was a judgment from the hand of the God of Israel. Listen, the same God that judged the Egyptians. And so wanting to learn from the mistakes that the Egyptians had made when they hardened their hearts, because they knew when the Egyptians, you know, when Pharaoh hardened his heart, wouldn't let the people of God go, uh, the judgments kept coming and got stronger. They said, you know what? We need to learn from their mistake. And, and so their, their, the advice was simple that these religious wise men gave to the leaders. Look, get this thing out of here now. Right? Send it back to the God of Israel before we make him any more upset with us than he already is. And he wipes us out like he wiped out the Egyptians. Good advice. All right. I think it's interesting that the Philistines, who were pagans, still could grasp the spiritual gravity of their situation and knew that the answer was not to harden their hearts anymore against the God of Israel, but instead they allowed his judgments to bring them to repentance. Now, I'm not saying they had saved. The word repentance just simply means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And they definitely had a change of mind here that led to a change of action. They were going to keep the ark. Now they're going to give it back. Okay, that was a big change of mind. Who knows? The language here seems to indicate that they knew that the God of Israel was a lot greater than their gods. Maybe some of the Philistines through this whole thing got saved. We don't know. Maybe we'll see him in heaven. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, anyways, they had a change of heart. They were brought to repentance in a sense. Verse 7, it says, Now, therefore, make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart. Take their calves home uh, away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch. If it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he, the God of Israel, has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened by chance. Okay? All right, the Philistines decided to uh, conduct a little experiment. Just that they were pretty sure this was the God of Israel doing all this stuff. But, you know, you don't want to repent unnecessarily. So let's just make a little, do a little test here to make sure that this is, in fact, judgment from the God of Israel. The test was simple. And by design, the odds were stacked against God, if that's possible, which it isn't. But they decided to take two milk cows that had never been yoked and yoke them together and then hitch them to a cart. Now, in that society, of course, they live in an agrarian lifestyle. They knew animals and farming and all that. And they knew that any animal that had never been yoked before was going to kick and fight, would never do what you wanted it to do, would never pull a cart down the road towards a certain location. They knew that, all right? They figured, okay, you know, let's just make it as hard as possible so the God of Israel proves that he's involved here, all right? But not only that, if that wasn't enough to stack the deck against God, they figured, okay, let's take two milk cows that have just given birth, take their calves away from them, bring them back to your barn, hide them there. Because they knew that if they, you know, when they did this, that these two cows who just had given birth, their maternal instincts would kick in, and they would be roaming around looking for their calves instead of, you know, going down the road to Israel, all right? So they figured, look, after all of this, if these cows make a beeline to the land of Israel down the road there, we know that the God of Israel was behind this whole deal. Now, before we go on, one final thought. I want to just draw your attention once again to verse 9. 
where they said, But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by chance. Look, the idea that chance is responsible for the events that take place in our lives, and even the reason that everything exists is big among evolutionists. In fact, Jacques Monod, a biochemist, wrote, and I quote, Chance alone is at the source of every innovation, of all creation in the biosphere, pure chance, absolutely free but blind, at the very root of the stupendous edifice of evolution, end quote. So chance is their God. In fact, people have turned chance into a force or a power like God that they then substitute for the true God as the source of all things and all circumstances that touch their lives. But I like what one pastor says. He said, look, you know, we talk about chance, and today people want to make chance a force. They say that if you flip a coin up into the air, uh, you know, it's chance that's going to determine whether it lands on heads or tails. Well, chance is nothing. Chance is a term that we have invented to describe a probability, uh, a random probability is the idea. You flip a coin up in the air and it lands on heads or tails, chance didn't do that. Chance is just, again, the idea that something occurs randomly, but chance doesn't bring it about. There's other factors, how hard you flip the thing, you know, wind currents, uh, you know, if it comes down and you flip it over. What, all of that is involved in this idea of chance. The problem is that Man has turned chance into a god. This is very big among evolutionists because in their mind, chance has brought about everything. But in reality, there is no chance. There is only cause, and the great cause is God himself, who said, let there be light, or he spoke the world or the universe into existence. He is the great cause. And guys, realizing that nothing happens by chance should make all of us pause for a minute and reflect upon all the events of our lives that were not random, they were not chance, but they were orchestrated by the hand of God, listen, first of all, to bring us to him, and now that we know him, to lead us in our work for him. He's involved in it all. He's not the God of the deists, removed and uninvolved. He is very involved. He even counts the hairs on our heads, and with some of us, he's constantly having to readjust that count. <laughs> Why does he do that? Why does he care about the number of hairs on our heads? Just to show us how much he loves us how involved he is in our lives. You know, Paul the Apostle in Galatians 1 said that he was called into ministry from his mother's womb. What does that mean? Paul was saying, the family I was born into. He was born into a Jewish family. His dad was a Pharisee, very religious family. At a certain age, Paul was bar mitzvah and sent to Jerusalem to study at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the seven great teachers in Israel's history. But Paul said, the fact that I was born into a Jewish family but I was born into a Gentile community. He was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, a very famous university town, a town of high learning, brought up in Greek culture. Uh, Paul learned all the stuff about Greek culture and Gentile living in the place he grew up. Uh, he learned his Jewishness and the knowledge of the true and living God in the scriptures from the fact he was born a Jew. All of that God used when God finally called him into ministry as a, an apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul didn't believe in some random force called chance that was leading his life. He understood God had his hand on Paul's life even from the moment of conception. Unfortunately, guys, there are many who would rather believe in chance or circumstance as a basis for what happens in their lives rather than God. It's obvious God has made everything. 
How can you look out into this creation and see all the design and say it came about through just a big cosmic accident chance? I mean, that would be as foolish as going downtown today and looking at the Willis Tower and going, boy, that incredible explosion created that building. With all of its complex systems, heating, air conditioning, uh, sewer, and water, and everything that could, you know, lighting and so on, it took architects and construction workers and all kinds of people to, no fool in their right mind would look at something like that and go, it happened by chance or a big explosion. But we look at the universe, and in particular, all of us who are fearfully and wonderfully made, the Bible says, and man, unbelieving man looks at the creation, looks at us and goes, oh, what a cosmic accident. What a great thing chance is. Foolishness. All right. So the Philistines were pagans. We understand where they were coming from. And they decided, okay, let's send this thing back to Israel. Now, they were in Ekron. They decided to do this. Uh, Ekron was one, the, was one of the main cities of the Philistines. And they decided to send the ark down the road on this cart with these milking cows pulling it uh, to Beth Shemesh, which was probably the closest uh, Israeli town in the area. Now, it happened that... Beth Shemesh was also a Levitical city. Now that's going to play into the story in just a moment, so let's keep reading. Verse 10, Then the men did so. They took the two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and images of, of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went. It did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. So it was fall. It was autumn by this time. And they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings, and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. Now these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, according to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Who was Joshua of Beth Shemesh? I don't know. We, nobody knows. Just a guy that lived there, okay, at the time. So you, you get the idea now, okay? They, they send the ark back, and the people of, of Beth Shemesh rejoiced to see it. Levites, man, they were just beside themselves with joy. And they took the cows and they offered them to the Lord. And boy, everything sounds real good. And we understand what's going on. But then the story takes a kind of a tragic turn. Verse 19, Then he, the Lord, struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. We don't want it. Take it. Now, when the Philistines had the ark in their possession, they were no doubt curious about what was inside. Okay, But they wisely chose not to open it. Say, well, why? I don't know. 
Maybe they saw the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they didn't want their heads melted. I don't know, okay? Uh, I'm sure it was fear, reverence for the God of Israel, but they wisely decided not to open the thing and look inside. Now, sadly, the men of Beth Shemesh, who were the people of God, and not just any people, they were Levites. They did open the ark to look inside, and God struck 50,070 men. Now, some of your Bibles might have 70 men instead of the 50,070. There is a debate among scholars whether or not this number is a copyist error in Hebrew Letters represent numbers also. And the way this number is written, they say it's a little different, and maybe it was a copyist error, and he just meant to write 70 and put the little Hebrew letter there by mistake and made it 50,070. And so you have a lot of scholars that say, no, it couldn't have been 50,070 guys. I mean, we don't think that Beth Shemesh had that many people in it. They estimate Jerusalem only had maybe 70,000 at this time, but that's all speculation. They don't really know how many people lived in these towns at that time. Now, what do I think? Well, I kind of think the number's accurate. It says in verse 19, God struck them with a what? A great slaughter, which in my mind goes beyond 70 guys. We know this whole story of, that surrounds the ark starting in chapter 4. We know that in chapter 4, verse 2, 4,000 were slain in relation to the ark. Then in verse 10, 30,000 were slain. For 70 guys to be called a great slaughter after you have 4,000 and 30,000 slain, I think is not accurate. I think it was 50,070 guys. That's just me. Now, the response of the men of Beth Shemesh after the Lord had judged so many for looking into the ark is interesting. Let me read verses 20 and 21 again. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? In other words, who can we give this ark to? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kirjath Jerem, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. We want to get rid of it. In other words, guys, listen to what they're saying. Let's read between the lines a little bit. They're saying God is too holy for us. He takes sin too seriously for us. We need to pass God, represented by the ark, we need to pass God off onto someone else. We need to get rid of God. The same thing that people are doing in our culture today with regard to God. People don't want the God of the Bible. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's a God who has to punish sin. He's a God who says from one end of the Bible to the other, He loves us and wants to save us, but if we refuse, He will have to judge us in hell someday. But you know what? That is not a popular message in our culture anymore. There was a time when we really revered God. Even unbelievers used to read some of the quotes of our founding fathers who weren't even saved, like Ben Franklin and some. They had more reverence for God, knew the Word of God better than a lot of Christians today. But that has all changed, guys. That has all changed. We are living at a time when people don't want a holy God, a God who takes sin seriously. So what do they do? They get rid of Him in favor of a kinder, gentler, more tolerant God. Why? Because they want a God who is all love, and of course, a God of love is accepting. Accepting. He just accepts. These people reject thoroughly the concept of a God that judges sin. And the reason that people usually want to get rid of a God, or the God of the Bible who is holy and will judge sin in favor of a kinder, gentler, non-judgmental God, is because they love their sin. That's all there is to it. And they can't handle a God that says certain behaviors are unrighteous and perverted and therefore forbidden by him. Do you know I was reading about the life of um, Darwin? He was a religious man at one point. But 
as he, you know, came to realize that the God of the Bible is a God who judges sin, he decided he had to do away with that God because he had family that were unsaved. He didn't want to think about them having to go to hell someday. So he kind of reinvented God. That's, that's what people do today. They reinvent God. You see, the idea is that, look, if you love darkness rather than light because your deeds are evil, if people don't want to obey what God has said and live the way he has commanded in his word, they love their sin too much, they want to hold on to it, guess what? You got two choices. Either you get right with God or you get rid of God. Either you repent and turn to him and do what he has said, or you get rid of God and become an atheist. That's very big today. New atheism is on the rise. It's all linked to the fact that people don't want to have a God, the God of the Bible looking over their shoulder. They want to live any way they want. Read uh, Romans chapter 1. They suppress the knowledge of God in their desire to do unrighteousness, to live unrighteously and so on. And so they either become atheists or, this is popular today, they will reinvent God, as we just said. God made them in his image after his likeness. Remember Genesis? Well, now man is making God in their image after their likeness. What do I mean? Well... If they're soft on sin, then they have to invent a God who is soft and tolerant with regard to sin. Uh, they don't want to be judged and sent to hell one day for their sins. Therefore, they have to create a God who is all love and uh, all kindness, who would never judge anybody and send them to a terrible place called hell. Now, once they condition themselves to think that this is really God, okay, that this is really who God is, it removes all the guilt, it removes all the conviction of them living contrary to what God has said. So they begin to call evil good and good evil. That's the very thing the Bible says, woe unto that nation who calls evil good and good evil. That is a precursor to judgment. That is a sign that that nation is getting very close to judgment. Woe in the scripture always is linked to judgment. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. See, but once you remove the concept of God, once you sear your consciences with a hot iron, as Paul put it, and you just convince yourself that the God of the Bible is not really the true God, the true God is a loving deity who will never send anyone to hell, who embraces all kinds of people no matter how they're living. Well, once you convince yourself that that is the true God, well, now you open the way up to live in unbridled sin, unbridled lust, to embrace all kinds of things God has forbidden, homosexuality, killing of the innocent unborn children in their mother's wombs, doing all kinds of heinous things. And guess what? Often people who do these things have so justified it because now evil is good, abortion is good, and this is good, and homosexuality is good, and uh, gay marriage is good. When you convince yourself that those things are really good and those who stand against those things are evil, well, now you've really opened the way to do all kinds of things that God has said and feel virtuous in doing so. Guys, the answer is not to get rid of God. It's to get rid of your sin and uh, get right with God. That's the answer. My heart goes out to these folks. They have so convinced themselves that they're right and we are wrong. They, they mock us. They ridicule us. My God would never judge sin and send people to hell. And I tell them, you're right. Your God wouldn't. You know why? Because your God doesn't exist. You've invented him in your own mind. That, that's why he would never send. Of course he wouldn't or she wouldn't. Okay? You've invented your God. He is not the God of the Bible, who is the only true and living God. All right, let's step back from the passage in 1 Samuel 6 for a moment, for the rest of our time this morning. We've been looking at it historically and so on. Let's kind of look at what the spiritual lessons might be the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us through this. Now, I'll just tell you guys, this is a strange incident for several reasons. Let me just 
say this, okay? As I said earlier, the Ark of the Covenant was sent by the Philistines to Beth Shemesh, which we know from Joshua 21, verse 16, was a Levitical city. Now, what does that mean? When the children of Israel came into the promised land under Joshua, God had Joshua divide the land up among the 11 tribes. So wait, there were 12 tribes. That's right. The Levites didn't get an inheritance. God said, I'm their inheritance. They serve me. They're my ministers. Therefore, they don't inherit any land. So you other tribes, you've got to set aside cities in your borders for them to live in. 48 in total throughout the land. Beth Shemesh, according to Joshua 21, verse 16, was one of those Levitical cities. That, that comes into play here, guys. You've got to understand that. The question is, why would Levites, men that were trained in the worship and service of God, men that were trained in the proper way to approach the ark, transport the ark, and handle the ark, why in God's name would these men look inside the ark? Now, it gets even stranger when you realize they already knew what was in the ark. I mean, Moses wrote it down in the Torah. There were three things inside that ark. There was a golden pot full of manna. There was Aaron's staff that had budded in the rebellion of Korah. And then most importantly, most importantly, there were the two stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments written on them. So if they already knew what was inside the ark, why did they feel the need to look inside? Now I'll just give you what I, I think. I think they did it to see if the Philistines had taken the two tablets of the law out of the ark. And that was really the focus of this story. That is, was the big thing in their mind. They wanted to see if the Philistines had removed anything, but especially the two tablets of the law upon which were written the Ten Commandments. Now, to fully understand where I'm going with this, you have to understand something. Even though the Ark of the Covenant was a single piece of furniture, it was really made up of two pieces. First of all, a rectangular wooden box covered with gold, which measured 3 foot 9 inches long by 2 foot 3 inches wide, 2 foot 3 inches high. On top was a separate piece of pure gold, a lid called the mercy seat. Now in the mercy seat you had two angels, cherubim, one on either end of the mercy seat, kneeling with their heads facing each other, bowed down, and their wings stretched up, touching almost tip to tip directly above the mercy seat. The mercy seat was said to be the place symbolically where God dwelt upon the earth. It was his throne on the earth. We know that the heavens of heavens can't contain him. But symbolically, God did dwell there, and actually too, because his presence really did dwell there uh, until uh, God, because of the incredible immorality and idolatry of the people of Israel during the days of Ezekiel, you can read this about this in Ezekiel 10, God leaves the temple and departs. So, so he actually did dwell there. Of course, that didn't limit him. He was He's still everywhere in the universe also. But as I said, inside the ark, there were three items. The most important of these were the two stone tablets that God gave to Moses upon which he had written the Ten Commandments. Now, many scholars believe, and I think it's accurate with regard to where we're going with this, many scholars believe that the tablets of the law inside the ark were the ones that Moses broke when he came down from Sinai with the tablets in his arms. You remember, he's up on Mount Sinai for, what, 40 days, 40 nights? God gives him the law. Uh, embodied in the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, okay? He's coming down from the mountain, it's been 40 days, and he looks in the valley, and the children of Israel have already broken the first and greatest commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. They're worshiping the golden calf. What does he do? He's so angry, he throws the things down from the mountains, and they fall to the base, and they break. 
Well, later God has them make two new ones, but I think, and a lot of other people think, that the ones that were broken were the ones put inside the Ark of the Covenant and then covered with this special lid called the mercy seat. Why was it called the mercy seat? Because on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies the only time during the whole year he would go in there. That's where the Ark was. That's where the presence of God dwelt. He would go in there after offering many sacrifices to God and would take the blood of some of the animals. He would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. What did that do? Well, the idea was that God, who was seated above the mercy seat, would look down and he would see the broken law. He would see the sin of the people. But on top of that, or covering the broken law or their sin, was the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, which allowed God, listen, to show the people mercy and not judgment for breaking his law. After the high priest had finished sprinkling the mercy seat, he would come out of the Holy of Holies to the people. They were, this was Yom Kippur. They were gathered, the whole nation practically was gathered there in Jerusalem. And he would announce to them that their sins had now been forgiven. The blood had been sprinkled on the mercy seat. God had received it, and he had forgiven them for all their sins. Well, the people just burst into a, a celebration. They shouted with joy, had a big celebration. This is a big deal every year, okay, for them that the God of Israel was with them, that even though they were not perfect, that because of the blood of the sacrifices he allowed, their sins could be covered and they could be forgiven. And that fellowship with God, it's a big deal. So if these are Levites, they were involved in this whole thing. It's their town. They see the Ark of the Covenant. They're thinking. And who knows, it was in the fall of the year. That's when Yom Kippur takes place. It could have been that they were getting very close to Yom Kippur. Who knows, maybe the thing even showed up on the Feast of Yom Kippur. We don't know. But what they did was they looked inside, I believe, to see if the tablets of the broken law were still there. Because without them, this whole thing would be meaningless. They wouldn't have a celebration. And that's why I think they did it. You say, okay, but why did God strike them dead? I mean, they had good intentions. Can I just say this? Good intentions, guys, won't spare a person God's judgment if they disobey what he has said in his word. People have a concept today that says, well, it's okay if I do something wrong if I have good intentions. Like uh, when God says, thou shalt not lie. People say, well, but I only tell white lies. What's a white lie? It's a lie with good intentions. Well, you ought to read Revelation 21, verse 8, which says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. It doesn't say all liars except those with good intentions. All liars is the idea. Why was God so particular about this? God struck them dead. Why? Because in Numbers chapter 4, verse 20, God specifically said that no man was to look into the ark at the law of God. The mercy seat was to be on top, covering the opening, that nobody could see in and look at the law, the broken law. The mercy seat had to cover that. The question is why? Why was God so particular about looking inside the ark? And the only thing really to see of any importance was the broken tablets of the law. I mean, why was God so particular about this, even to the point of striking those dead that violated this command? Well, we could speculate all day as to why God, you know, said this. Can I just offer you one possible reason? I could be wrong. Can I just offer you one possible reason as to why God commanded this? It has to do with judgment apart 
from mercy. Judgment apart from mercy. Something God would never do himself toward us, judge us without mercy, or offer us mercy before judgment. And something he never wants us to do towards others. Look, in the case of the broken law inside the ark, God never wanted it looked upon without the covering of mercy. How does this apply to us? I believe, and again, I could be wrong. I believe the spiritual lesson the Lord is trying to teach us through this incident is that when others break God's law and it affects us in some way, uh, they do something that God has forbid. Okay, they uh, have an affair with our spouse or a father abuses his children or something else heinous, betrayed by a friend who lies about you or whatever it might be. All of us have been affected by people who have broken God's law. And guys, by the way, all sin is against who primarily? God. David said that when he sinned with Bathsheba and repented. He said, God, against you and you only have I sinned and committed this great evil. All sin is ultimately against God. Uh, it's a violation of what he has said in his law, broken laws. Okay, he, When we sin, we break his laws. But it does affect people. And the idea is that whenever somebody violates something God has said, and it touches us, it hurts us in some way, there's a tendency to focus only on the wrong, to get upset, of course, to be very hurt. Uh, They have wronged us. They have hurt us. And uh, we want to view that broken law of God that has affected us so powerfully, uh, we want to view it without any mercy. We want to just look at it, and uh, we want to say, Lord, you know, it's wrong what they did. You need to punish them. And God is saying, well, what about the wrong you've done? You want me to punish you too? Well, no, I want mercy, Lord. Well, if you want mercy, don't you think you ought to give mercy? If you only look at what they have done in terms of my law, you know, like the men with the rocks in their hands, ready to nail the woman caught in the act of adultery. What did Jesus say? Let him who has no sin cast the first stone. We're all in that group, aren't we? It's amazing how hard we can be on others who break God's laws and how gentle we can be on ourselves. God, get them, but be nice to me. But guys, every time we focus on the wrongs of others without having mercy in view, we die. Not physically, but we die internally. Our love dies. Our joy dies. Our peace dies. We, we become filled with bitterness and anger. We become hard. We want them to pay for what they have done. That's the law, isn't it? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But you see, mercy implies forgiveness. And forgiveness allows us to live and flourish spiritually instead of shriveling up and dying inside emotionally. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 6. And let me read you a verse that I've quoted, oh, I don't know, hundreds of times in my ministry. And I think every one of those times I quoted it, it was in regard to giving money. But you know, there are times when you're reading the Word and you recognize, wait a minute, I have not been looking at this in its full and proper context, okay? Listen to the whole context of Luke 6, the verse I've kind of misapplied, although it does still apply to giving, Verse 38, but let's back up to verse 36. Now, Jesus is talking here. He said, therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. To you is the idea. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, 
and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, often this verse 38 is quoted with regard to money. Give, and it will be given back to you. But God doesn't say it will be given back. And he doesn't say that uh, you'll receive good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your wallet. It says into your bosom. In other words, in your heart is the idea. Look, what Jesus Christ is telling us, I believe, is this. Your Father in heaven is merciful. He has shown you mercy. All the sins that you've committed, he's been merciful and gracious because you're his son and the blood of Christ is upon your life. He is showing you mercy because of what Jesus did and not bringing judgment. Now, as children of God, go out and show others mercy. Because, listen, if you show others mercy, well, God will show you mercy. God will fill you up with good things. You won't shrivel up emotionally, die inside. You'll have the fruit of the Spirit, which will be coming abundantly. Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and all the other beautiful fruits of the Spirit that are really the attributes of God will begin to flourish inside of us if, if we don't focus on the wrong they've done in hurting us, in violating something God said that wronged us and hurt us. But instead I see their sin against me in the light of God's mercy. Let me end by reading you an article that I read this week that puts a human face on what I'm saying here, okay? I think a lot of you in this room have heard the name Richard Wormbrand. The article goes like this. Richard Wormbrand, the heroic Romanian evangelical pastor, spent 14 and a half years in a Romanian prison suffering starvation and torture for the crime of boldly preaching the gospel of Christ in what was then a brutally repressive communist nation. When two years after his final release from captivity, Wormbrand testified in May of 1966 before the U.S. Senate's Internal Security Subcommittee, he stripped to the waist to reveal 18 deep wounds covering his torso, the result of years of unspeakable abuse. And yet, as Wormbrand proclaims in his classic work, Tortured for Christ, he and his fellow Christian prisoners well understood that the communists, especially those who imprisoned and tortured them, knew not what they did. He recognized deeply that his persecutors were all brainwashed slaves of principalities and powers. The rulers of darkness that have invaded this world, spiritual forces of wickedness in the high places. He knew that all that these men were doing to torture Christians was because Satan was involved and had brainwashed them. Until he died at age 91 in 2001, Wormbrand's message, one faithfully carried forward by the international ministry he founded, Voice of the Martyrs, has always been, and I quote, hate the evil systems, but love your persecutors, love their souls, and try to win them for Christ, end quote. With striking compassion for his jailers and tortured for Christ, Wormbrand writes, the enormous amount of drunkenness in communist countries exposed the longing for a more meaningful life which communism cannot give. The average Russian is a deep, big-hearted, generous person. Communism is shallow and superficial. He seeks the deep life, and finding it nowhere else, he seeks it in alcohol. He expresses in alcohol his horror about the brutal and deceitful life he must live. For a few moments, alcohol sets him free, as God's truth would set him free forever if he could just know it.
The author says so genuine was Wormbrand's concern for the souls of his tormentors that over the years, quite a few of them were converted to the Christian faith, ending up in prison with him and glad for it. Contemplate, if you can, Wormbrand's last act before leaving Romania after years of living 30 feet underground in a communist prison, no sunshine, no fresh air, always hungry, treated brutally and sadistically day after day and year after year, Wormbrand says in December of 1965, my family and I were allowed to leave Romania. My last deed before leaving was to go to the grave of the colonel who had given the order for my arrest and who had ordered my years of torture. I placed the flower on his grave. By doing this, I dedicated myself to bringing the joys of Christ that I have to the communists who are so empty spiritually. I hate the communist system, but I love the men. I hate the sin, but I love the sinner. I love the communists with all my heart. Communists can kill Christians, but they cannot kill their love toward even those who killed them. I have not the slightest bitterness or resentment against the communists or my torturers. The author says, how is this attitude possible? Again, quoting Wormbrand, Wormbrand says, I have seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red-hot iron pokers, in whose throats spoonfuls of salt had been forced down, being kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervor for the communists. He says, this is humanly inexplicable. The only explanation, it is the love of Christ which was poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, end quote. When I read that, after first service, one of our guys came up with tears in his eyes. He was in the service in Afghanistan, and he suffers from PTSD, although his case is not as severe as some of his friends that he is, uh, stays in contact with, who can't even work. He says, in 15 years, I had not really understood that the way to get over PTSD was to forgive those who hurt me. He says, it's very difficult when you're talking with your good friends, your best buddies, one day, and then two days later you're doing a funeral because they've been killed by an IUD or something like that. He said, but I realize now from that story you read that the only way for me to ever, ever get past this is to forgive those that hurt me. Guys, James put it this way. He said, judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. You want to show no mercy? The judgment is going to be you're going to shrivel up and die inside. All your peace will be gone. All your love, all your joy, you'll be just riddled with, with resentment and bitterness and hatred, and you'll want to get even. James goes on to say, mercy triumphs over judgment. The title of this message. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes, when it covers over another's sins the way the mercy seat covered over the broken law. Peter said, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. We are living in a time, and we're done, when Christianity is going to become more and more of an enemy to the secular minds of this country. James Dobson just came out a week or so ago and said that Christians are going to be targeted more and more. Things are changing. We know it's, we're getting close to the return of Jesus Christ. 
the God of this world, Satan, is ramping up his attacks on Christians. He's perverting the minds of people, making it seem like we're the enemy. Okay, because we stand for what's right, they think we are evil. Again, those who call evil good and good evil. And as the persecution ratchets up, and I think it's just going to become, it's going to stay verbal for a while, but now already it's beginning to transition into legal retribution. Okay, not making a cake for a gay couple out in Oregon or or saying some things uh, against homosexuality from the pulpit as you quote scripture. And there are places in this country where you can, it's already on the books, it's already hate crimes on the books for speaking out against things like homosexuality. They haven't enforced those things yet because the climate in the nation wasn't favorable towards enforcing those laws, but it's changing. I believe eventually if Jesus tarries, we're going to see it turn into physical persecution, imprisonment, and so on. It will become very easy for us as Christians to begin to hate those who have persecuted us, hurt us, wronged us, imprisoned us. But God doesn't want us to be drawn into the evil. He says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the first way you overcome evil is through mercy and forgiveness. Let God love them through you. They are not the enemy. Okay, like Wormbrand said, the communists were not his enemies. They were taken prisoner by the God of this world, and they were being manipulated to do the will of the devil. We have to separate the sin from the sinners. And love the sinners, hate the sin. May God give us grace to do that. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your mercy toward us. And Lord, your word says very clearly that because you have loved us and forgiven us and shown mercy to us, we must forgive others who have wronged us. We must show them mercy. Not only because it's what you want, but because if we don't, we shrivel up and die inside. And Lord, give us grace to approach those who have wronged us and who someday might wrong us by seeing their sin in the light of your mercy, that we might extend mercy to them and forgiveness, that we might flourish spiritually, that you would pour into us good measure, shaken down, pressed together and running over your love, the fruit of your spirit. Father, we thank you. We ask, Lord, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.